0: to Something Historical. As I was going over information for episode 2, there were a couple big ideas that really stuck out in my mind. And this second episode kind of revolves around these two concepts in my mind. There's, of course, the maturation of Thomas Jefferson, his education, his growth, his development as a young adult, which is critically important to our story as well. But the two things that stood out most to me are two points that I think today are really valuable to understand and important to talk about. The first being this, it stands out to me how we in society only have priorities on issues that affect us. Now, you wouldn't think that the American Revolution, the idea of independence, is something that not everybody would be for. But truly, the people who started the push for independence first are the ones that are affected by the measures taken by British Parliament and George III. We'll get to this. We'll kind of dive into this a little bit deeper. But even in our own society, things are truly not a priority, whether it's in government or in social circles, until they really affect us. And so, as more and more people become affected by things like the intolerable acts, the Stamp Act, the Sugar Act, soldiers living in your home in Boston, things like that, then more and more people get enveloped into. revolutionary movement. But it's not until until it affects you personally that it becomes a big priority. And this is where Jefferson stands out, I think. We have to give Jefferson credit where credit is due. Jefferson is a brilliant politician. He is a political master, especially on the question of independence. One of the things that makes Jefferson an excellent politician is the fact that he can convince people that a problem is their problem. If that makes sense. It's something that the public constantly needs. The public needs people to convince them that a certain problem should be their problem. After all, uh, why does anything dealing with immigration have to do with me if I'm not living on a state at the border? That might be an issue for people who live in states on the border, but it's not an issue for me because I don't live in a border state unless you come and tell me otherwise. If you can somehow convince me that this problem affects me. Otherwise, I have no interest in it. Jefferson's excellent at convincing people that a certain problem affects them or that they should be concerned about a certain problem that otherwise wouldn't affect them at all. Perhaps that's a lost art of politics today. We may not have politicians who can do that anymore or nearly as well, perhaps, as they used to. The other thing that this part of Jefferson's life brings up is how important is it to have morally sound political leaders? How important is it to a society to have morally good people in government? Are we willing to tolerate somebody who is morally ambiguous if they are a talented politician? Are we willing to tolerate or accept someone whom we may have questions about their morals if they are a prolific public servant? So, to sum this up, which which would you rather have? A government leader who is morally questionable, perhaps in some cases morally reprehensible, but a talented, gifted, and accomplished leader, or... Would you rather have somebody that is not as talented, doesn't accomplish as much, not nearly as gifted of a public servant, may not be able to do as many good things, may not be able to do as many constructive things for the society that you're living in, but they are a morally upstanding person? We need to remember that morals are relative. If you would have gone to the majority of white Americans, in 18th century Virginia and asked them whether or not slavery was moral, the majority of them would have said yes. There's no moral questions about slavery at all. So, of course, we'll say that Jefferson lacks the moral standing as far as the slavery issue is concerned, but there's another thing that he does a couple of times that perhaps brings up the moral question. So again, are we willing to accept immoral actions from our leaders and politicians as long as they are talented and constructive leaders? You could argue, people have, that democracy is the one area where you're most safe having immoral leadership. Think about it. If you're living in an absolute monarchy, you need that ruler, that absolute ruler with total power, to be as morally good as possible. Because that person is going to be making decisions, moving policy, changing your life pretty directly. So you want that person, no checks and balances surrounding them, you want that person to be as morally good as possible. However, in a democracy where there are systems in place, a bureaucracy in place, checks and balances, branches of government, you can have, at times, probably not recommended all the time, you can have leaders with moral failings, and the system can absorb that a little bit easier. So the morals of the people, the morals of society, may not be reflected in the leadership. And of course, a lot of people do want their leaders to reflect their own personal morals or the morals of society, and I understand that. I think the thing that bothers us the most is when we get leaders with moral issues, but are not effective rulers. Perhaps a relevant topic for today, but we will accept, usually, the immoral ruler who is an effective ruler. Episode 2, Love and Taxes. are we talking about these two things? Both are brought up in the second episode, because as Jefferson matures and grows, and as he starts to become aware of the issues of Virginia, the issues of the colonies, the issues of the world, as he starts to be influenced by adults and other thinkers and culture, we'll see him struggle morally, really for the rest of his life, And we'll also see him use his political skills to convince people that there's a problem that may not necessarily actually be a problem. This is something we have to remember. Before we get to the revolution, today, when we look back at the revolution, we're looking back in hindsight. We know that it's successful, and I think most of us would agree at least those in the United States would agree, that it was a good thing. It was a fortuitous moment in history. But consider the fact that in Jefferson's America, in the 18th century, there's a considerable number of colonists who would tell you that not only is independence probably a bad idea, but it's also, in all likelihood, impossible. Independence from Britain would have been a pipe dream. So the majority of people are not walking around saying, ah, we can't wait till we can be independent. What year is it? 1774, two years to go. In two years, we're going to be independent from Great Britain. All we got to do is fight this little teeny tiny war, but we got George Washington. We're all set. No worries. And then we'll be independent and we'll create the greatest civilization in the world, arguably. Nobody thinks that. Nobody says that. Nobody knows that. We know it, but we have the ability of looking back with hindsight. They don't. So Jefferson has to be a convincer, he's got to be able to convince people not only is it a good idea, but it's also possible. Let's jump in. So since Williamsburg was not just where Jefferson went to college, but also was the capital of Virginia and had in it uh, Virginia's colonial government, which was known as the House of Burgesses, they did have some powers over the colony. A lot of it was run by and limited by the British government, but it did have authority over the colony of Virginia. It's no wonder why Jefferson gets involved in politics. He's immediately drawn to it. The competition, the arena, the exchange of ideas, the overall impact of politics in his life and in other people's lives. To him, it was uh, really the most innocent involvement in politics uh, that we can think of. People today get involved in politics largely for wrong reasons. As a job, to make money, to have power. I think Jefferson genuinely appreciates what politics is. He gets involved and becomes fascinated by it because it's an exchange of ideas there's impactful moments. He's on the precipice of policy. He knows that his mind and his abilities would be best served in this exchange of ideas. It's, it's an arena of ideas, and that's where Jefferson wants to be. He wants to be a part of that. He wants to be in the thick of it. And that's Jefferson's draw to politics. And we can see in his college years two things. One, we see him being a college kid. He goes out, he parties, he drinks, he gambles, he reads books, he hangs out with people that are like him. He chases girls. He surrounds himself with uh, people of similar ideas, similar makeup. He has favorite professors. Like most college kids, one of his favorite professors was William Small from Scotland. And he was a professor of mathematics and also moral philosophy. So it's no wonder why Jefferson liked him. Jefferson will become fairly philosophical himself. Small taught Jefferson ethics, rhetoric, Bell's Letters, and philosophy, and math. And I think that's so interesting because Jefferson's college curriculum is comprised of ethics, rhetoric, letters, philosophy. The humanities, which I think today are not valued and probably should be valued much more than they are. But Jefferson reads things like Immanuel Kant. Meacham quotes Kant's uh, definition of the spirit of the era, saying, "Quote: "...enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. This immaturity is self-imposed when it causes lies not in lack of understanding." but in lack of resolve and courage to use it without guidance from another. End quote. So these are the kind of things that Jefferson is getting exposed to in his college years. It's not just the parties and the gambling and hanging out with friends, as college is, but it's also about the forming of ideas. And who Jefferson surrounds himself with In these formative years, is number two. That's the second thing that we notice. Jefferson surrounds himself with people of influence in Williamsburg, but also who we would define as liberals. Now, not liberals in today's context. If we were to match up modern liberal beliefs against the 1760 liberal beliefs, they would look definitely not liberal especially the social ideas. But at the time, they were very liberal, and Jefferson is drawn to these liberal ideas. One of the people that he's most fond of and visits quite a bit is actually the governor. Now, the governor had several dinners and exchange of idea parties, if you will, and William Small, Jefferson's professor, favorite professor, was often invited, along with somebody else that Jefferson gets to know, George Wythe, one of Virginia's most well-known lawyers. And so Jefferson pretty much hangs around with the governor of Virginia, small, and Wythe, and absorbs all their liberal, progressive ideas. And they start to get a large influence on the young adult that Jefferson is. Wythe is probably his closest influence. And as Jefferson endeavors to form political opinions and evaluate the world around him in colonial Virginia, he a lot of times borrows the ideas of these influential people. It's that old saying. It's not necessarily about what you know. It's about who you know. He knows some pretty important individuals in Williamsburg, but they're also pretty liberal, and he gains these liberal ideas as well. Now, one thing that Jefferson does not have as much success with is women interestingly enough he's a young man he's college age women are probably his first priority as most young men will attest to but jefferson does not find much success he starts pining that's right i'm using the term pining uh after a woman known as Rebecca Burwell. And Rebecca Burwell was the sister of one of his classmates, and Jefferson is the typical 20-year-old who is sometimes obnoxious, sometimes too serious, other times not serious enough. He's a typical 20-year-old guy. He has no idea about women, he's got no idea about himself in a lot of ways, and his courting of Rebecca Burwell is a complete disaster. Almost none of their young relationship went well. Our customs of courtship today are very different than they would have been for Jefferson, but in a lot of ways they're similar. You know, there's dancing involved, there's private conversations, there's that back and forth, you know, does how does he feel about me, how does she feel about me, you know, awkwardness that comes with young love. And Jefferson knows what he wants, he knows what he wants to say to her, he's not necessarily sure about how she feels, and he tries to speak to her one time when they're dancing, at a party, and he thinks it's like the perfect moment. Everything is right. It's very middle schoolish, right? They're dancing together, very close. He wants to tell her how he feels. He tries to, and it, it's basically a word vomit. It comes out as a disaster. And she is completely put off by this. And Jefferson is humiliated. Again, he's not the best with words verbally, he's great on paper. And then Rebecca is planning to go to England, and so there's some interest, but Jefferson pretty much has to seal the deal he's gotta he's gotta wrap things up here, and he basically says that he said, "I'm not gonna ask you to marry me, but I'm not not asking you to marry me, so if you go to England and you come back like we could get married." or we could not. It really is up to you. And she's completely, again, put off by this as well. And Jefferson is bitterly defeated by this first chance of courtship. And Jefferson falls into what people would probably best describe as being lovesick. He's very melodramatic about this, as most young men are. And then apparently Rebecca is engaged to another gentleman, and he's even more uh, put down in the dumps by this. Apparently, he's just an absolute basket case. And his quote on this is just fascinating. Depending on how you interpret this, this could be a really great quote, or it could be a really bad quote. But Jefferson is writing to a friend after he learns of Rebecca Burwell's engagement. To someone else, and says, Many and great are the comforts of a single state, and neither of the reasons you urge can have any influence with an inhabitant and a young inhabitant, too, of Williamsburg. For St. Paul only says that it is better to be married than to burn. Now, I presume that if the apostle had known, that providence would at an after day be so kind to any particular set of people as to furnish them with other means of extinguishing their fire than those of matrimony, he would have earnestly recommended them to their practice. Other means of extinguishing their fire. Now, as Meacham points out, Jefferson had available enslaved women who would have been forcefully available for the extinguishing of his supposed fire. But if that's not the case, and again, it's hard to tell, we also know that he is a college kid, and there are lots of women in Williamsburg who would probably find a young up-and-coming politician as being someone that they might want to be with, so it's hard to tell. But Jefferson kind of brushes this off and says, eh, there's other ways of matrimony to extinguish their fire. This is something that will come up with Jefferson again, and again, and again. Sex is very much on his mind, as is politics. We know that as you mature from an adolescent a young adult, you go through a period of time in which you form your base opinions, your ideas, what you think is good and bad, moral, immoral, Uh, politically as well, this transformation takes place, and you start to create your own political views. And since Jefferson is a political figure, it's important to get an understanding of where his political motivations come from. Jefferson is a political radical. After all, he writes the most radical political document uh, in human history. So, one of the things that we need to do if we want to understand Jefferson is to go back and look at where his political ideas form, because Jefferson doesn't just come up with this stuff out of the blue. He's been influenced, like all of us, by people that he sees around him, ideas that he hears from media, people that he looks at in government. So there's a lot of basic uh, places where your social and political ideas come from. You get them from your parents. You get them from your church or lack of church. You get them from media, of course, from peer groups. Now Jefferson has a different experience than we do today because he does not have the kind of in-your-face media that we have, which oftentimes tell you what to believe about things. There certainly were people who did that in Jefferson's time, but it was not as common for someone to tell you what to believe without telling you why to believe it, or the other opposing side. But I want to start with, again, Jefferson's most fundamental influence. We talked last episode, Jefferson's most important influence in his life, his young life, was most likely his father, Peter Jefferson. And so, what were Peter Jefferson's political beliefs? Where did Peter Jefferson stand on relations with Great Britain? What does Peter Jefferson believe about the politics of the period? Now, remember, Peter Jefferson dies rather young in Thomas Jefferson's life, so we don't get the kind of letters written back and forth from Jefferson to his father discussing the major issues of the time. But we know that when Jefferson was 14, on Peter Jefferson's death, he inherits some of his father's books. And some of those can give us a hint as to what Peter Jefferson believed and therefore what young Jefferson would have picked up from his parents. We know that our parents definitely have an impact on our beliefs and opinions. Now, you do end up sometimes sometimes deviating from those. You don't always agree with your parents on everything but it does give you a baseline to go off of. And as you mature and become an adult, then you start to evaluate things on your own terms. But as a teenager or a young person, a lot of times you agree with what your parents believe on political and social issues. So Jefferson inherits one book in particular that has some importance to us. He inherits from his father, Paul de Rapons. History of England. It was written by Paul Thereupon, a French historian, who was commissioned to write a history of England, which up to this point included a great deal of turmoil and controversial moments. But it's being written from a Whig perspective. And Whig is something that we'll talk about here because you've got to understand the Whig side, the political side. History is written, a lot of times, with a bit of a slant on it, just like the news. So we know that Jefferson understands and knows English history. And so Jefferson knows about more recent English history, the English Civil War, which deposed the monarch Charles I. He was beheaded. There was the Restoration, which then brought back Charles I's son, Charles II, to become the monarch again. And then they got rid of the monarch again, and they had what was known as the Glorious Revolution, because there wasn't much violence. So Jefferson will come to this understanding that most of English history is a history of a tug-of-war between the people and the monarchy. Fundamental to English history is the tug of war between the people and the monarchy. And Jefferson discovers this and knows it. Now, the Whig perspective is important here. Who cares if the book is written from a Whig perspective? What is Whig? The Whigs were a political party. They were kind of the opposite of the Tory party in British politics in the 18th century. The Tories were much more of the conservative party, we might say. They, they believed in the monarchy. They wanted uh, about as absolute of a monarchy as possible. The Whigs were much more of the progressive party. They wanted a limited monarchy. They saw Parliament as more important or you might say, uh, had greater supremacy over the monarchy. So Parliament over the monarchy, or the Tories saw monarchy over Parliament. So the inclusion of this Whig history of England uh, shows us that Peter Jefferson probably had Whig sympathies. At least this was his view on... British history, English history as well, then Jefferson probably inherited this book and likely also inherited these political views. John Meacham says that Peter Jefferson was a staunch Whig and he adhered to certain democratic ideas. And of course, these ended up descending to his son. So it's not unlikely to say that young Jefferson was progressive in his political thinking, especially about the British monarchy. Now, when we use the term progressive, we need to be careful not to conflate it with the modern term progressive. He's certainly not progressive in the sense of today's standards. We know that. But the term progressive and conservative can be applied to many different circumstances. So don't get hung up on the term progressive too much. All that means is he is essentially anti-monarchy, in a sense. But the fundamental baseline belief of Jefferson's political ideas, if we could strip everything else down and get to the bottom, the core essential belief of Jefferson's political views. What would that be? It seems as if, at his very core, Jefferson sees himself as an English citizen, an Englishman, who is basically not receiving the full rights and liberties of English citizens. This is important. We view these people, of course, today as Americans. George Washington, an American hero, right? John Adams, he's an American. Thomas Jefferson, definitely an American. But they saw themselves as Englishmen. They were British citizens. And Jefferson believed that himself, the other landowners of Virginia, people of other colonies, were all British citizens who were not receiving the full rights and liberties of British citizens. Jefferson, essentially, at his core, sees no difference between himself in Virginia and citizens of the British monarchy who are living in England or Wales, Scotland maybe. They're all the same. So his base belief that he is an Englishman being denied the essential benefits and rights of an English citizen is core to his political development, and that's key. So when we start to talk about things like taxes and representation... John Meacham points out that these are really arguments, of course, about control and about liberty. And that's kind of what liberty is. What is liberty? Liberty, essentially, is the ability for you to control yourself, your own life, your own circumstances, your own decisions. Slaves don't have liberty because they can't just leave and go find a job children a lot of times don't have liberty liberty because they're restrained economically and legally by their circumstances kids in class all the time say i have rights i'm allowed to wear this shirt you know maybe the shirt has something Obscene on it, and they're like, "This, this is free speech." And I always remind them that their liberty is restrained by the rules of the school. They're not at liberty to do whatever they want. Liberty is control over yourself. So Meacham says these arguments over taxes, representation, having soldiers staying in your house. Things like that. It's really about liberty and control. And as we said in the opening, Jefferson has an unbelievable ability of convincing people who have no investment in an issue to become invested in it. He can convince people that an issue will affect them or is affecting them even when it isn't. So, One of the things that we notice is this revolutionary idea, the discontent with the British government, comes from the higher social classes in the colonies first. Those who are most financially bothered by some of the acts of parliament that are passed it starts to affect their lives and their pocketbook. And then it becomes an issue. So for the average American farmer, well, let's not use the term American. It's not a thing yet. My mistake. For the average Virginia farmer, are the is the Stamp Act really something to go to war in Revolution 4? Probably not. However, it was affecting people who made money. It was affecting their fortunes. And so the first discontent with the British government in the colonies comes from those who have economic investment and might be better off financially without these laws. For example, the Sugar Act, passed in 1764, which limited liberty because it provided more control over sugar. And, of course, we know even today sugar is an incredibly valuable thing. Can't live without it, although definitely try. But what's interesting, as Meacham points out, the bill actually lowered the tax on things like molasses, which, of course, molasses and rum, very popular, but it imposes duties on other items like, here we go, wine. (laughs) Wine. Of course, Jefferson, in his young years, and even in his later years, loves wine. He is a wine fan, big wine connoisseur. So once it starts affecting their life, the wealthier classes of society in places like Virginia or Massachusetts start to show their discontent. Do you want something that you use almost every day, text? Of course not. But we put up with it in a lot of ways because, well... We have representation in government. Why is the British government doing this? Why is the British government raising taxes in the 1760s on the colonists? Because they need to make money. They have just fought the Seven Years War against the French and Native Americans of North America, which was a very costly enterprise. They are continuing to push an empire around the globe. So, running a large empire costs a lot of money. And who would you rather tax? The people that are living around you or the people who are living an ocean away from you who you can just ignore? And so they raise taxes on the colonists. But again, not everybody's affected by this. The average Virginia farmer who maybe doesn't drink all that much wine not really going to be affected by the Sugar Act. Of course, opposition to these acts of parliament raising taxes on colonists is immediate. But it's not something to declare independence over. But still, colonial governments have to figure out how to respond to this. One of Jefferson's biggest influences, one of his role models or mentors, as you might say, George Wythe, drafts a petition to the House of Commons protesting the taxation. He, though, was very strong in his wording against the taxation, and some even suggested that it was possible treason. However, I think the person who had the biggest impact on Jefferson's radicalism would be Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was, in a lot of ways, everything that Jefferson wasn't. Henry was a radical, a political radical, like Jefferson will end up becoming. But Henry also is a speaker where Jefferson is a writer. And Jefferson definitely looks at Henry's ability to rouse people with public speech and finds that so admirable. He knows the qualities of a great public speaker who can get people motivated to do something just by making a speech. Jefferson listens to Patrick Henry making a speech in awe, in the House of Burgesses, the government, the colonial government of Virginia, House of Burgesses, and Henry is saying radical things. Jefferson says quote he appeared to speak he appeared to me to speak as Homer wrote, pretty high praise, of course, there were some people who claimed that. Patrick Henry was speaking treason. We know that the Sugar Act was not the only act of taxation passed. We have the Stamp Act, which comes later. And in all honesty, if we were to ask Jefferson at the time of the Stamp Act, what should you do? How should you solve this problem of being unfairly taxed as a Englishman without any representation in Parliament. Something that I think we all would be frustrated with. If we were to ask Jefferson, how do we solve this problem? The answer we would probably get, very anticlimactic, from him would probably be something along the lines of, I don't know. <laughs> and he's not alone. Most Most colonial leaders in any of the colonies would have said, I don't know. It's a tough question. It is. It's an extremely tough question. What can you do? Independence certainly would not have been the first thing that comes to mind. Meacham points out that Jefferson was an unlikely revolutionary. In fact, Jefferson was very pragmatic. He's also an idealist. So, while Jefferson might, in his mind, be dreaming of an independent nation, creating some new government, there's no way that it would actually happen. Imagine how difficult that would be. We all have great ideas. I'm going to do this. I'm going to create this. I'm going to start this. And then you realize how hard it is or how unbelievably complicated it might be, and that oftentimes stops us from doing things. So Jefferson may be an idealist. He may see a way out of this current taxation problem, but can, he actually, can, any of, can anybody actually do it? Would it make a difference? So what does Jefferson do? Well, He starts to put down his thoughts into writing. Jefferson says that the press at the time was very restricted. He says, quote, we had but one press. He also says, quote, nothing disagreeable to the governor could be got into it. So it's not easy for you to go against the Stamp Act or the Sugar Act and write to the public about how it is unjust or unfair or whatever. Jefferson knows he's not the speaker that Patrick Henry is. He's not going to rouse crowds with his oratory skill, so he learns to write, and he learns to write really, really well. One of the things that is critical to this period of time is writing with speed. Today, we take this for granted. How long is it going to take you to write five pages? If I give you time to just type out a manifesto, five pages, how long would it take? I bet I could do it in about an hour, maybe. And have it printed. I could I could type three to five pages of text and print a hundred copies within an hour. Thank you, modern technology. Jefferson doesn't have that. Jefferson has to write by hand. And in order for Jefferson to get his ideas out, he's gotta be able to write with speed. Let's say the Stamp Act is passed. He doesn't have the comfort of sitting around for a week thinking about it. He's got to be able to write quickly, and he does. He also has an attentive audience who has their own visions and their own views, as Meacham points out. Now, we know Jefferson's writing is a skill because we have his writings on more than just politics. He also develops an ability to stay stoned-faced in political discussions or social discussions. He has a great poker face. You cannot tell if something bothers him. As Meacham calls it, the ability to conceal anxiety beneath a cool veneer. And this poker face would have helped him to appear calm, cool, and collected in the face of some of these political and social problems. Jefferson, though, as a lot of colonists believed, uh, that Virginia was superior to other colonies. He goes to the Maryland legislature and is very snobbish about his fellow colonists. He's not impressed at all in the Maryland legislature. It's not anything like the House of Burgesses in Virginia. But on the journey through Maryland, he also gets to New York, Philadelphia. Despite the fact that he may feel that Virginia is superior, he also notices that there's something bigger in this. It's an American cause. He notices that the taxation is an issue in not just Williamsburg and not just Virginia, but in other areas as well. And that's something that Jefferson will harness. As Jefferson builds a reputation as a political thinker and a writer of amazing talent, again, the moral question sneaks back in jefferson had been wanting after a young woman named elizabeth walker and she was married to his friend john walker someone who jefferson had known all of his life their families had gone back pretty far jefferson and john walker were very close But Jefferson, in his young adulthood, um, gets a little too close to Walker's wife, Elizabeth. And Walker even names Jefferson as his executor in his will. And then he goes on a trip. He leaves. Uh, He leaves Virginia for quite a while. And in the time, Jefferson and Walker's wife, Elizabeth, have some interactions with each other. Supposedly, Elizabeth resists, but Jefferson is not deterred. He keeps after her, trying to keep everything secret. Elizabeth starts to tell John Walker that she's no longer really comfortable with Jefferson. Jefferson, though, stays after it. Uh, I think Meacham says he, quote, renewed his caresses towards her. Supposedly he would slip her notes. Supposedly they were both at this big party. Jefferson pretended to be sick and slipped out and went to Elizabeth's room. Apparently she was undressing and Jefferson tried to Sealed the deal, if you will, and apparently she resisted. But in the end, Jefferson fails at trying to poach John Walker's wife. But nonetheless, that didn't stop him. And then on Thursday, December 15th of 1768, Thomas Jefferson for the first time in his life, is elected to a political position. Jefferson is elected to represent his county in the House of Burgesses. He was 25 years old, and Jefferson now gets to enter the political arena. What's interesting, though, is that at the same time, Massachusetts is, of course, causing of issues. The Townsend Acts had been passed in 1767, and Massachusetts completely rejects them. The House of Burgesses in Virginia joins Massachusetts in their protesting of the Townsend Acts, and interestingly enough, the House of Burgesses is dissolved. So Jefferson serves for about 10 days before the House of Burgesses is ended. So Jefferson's first entry into politics is not very long-lived. So what does Jefferson do? He goes home. Jefferson, of course, is devastated at his lack of role in this political arena. But, of course, at this point in young Jefferson's life, again, 25, He's forming a lot of opinions. He's turning ideas over in his mind. In Jefferson's early public career, he's not just willing, but also advocating in a way for reform of slavery. Jefferson is eventually going to own more than 600 slaves. Meacham says he inherits 150 from his father, He buys about 20 on his own. Most of his slaves were actually born into slavery, which was very common. But Jefferson says that in 1769, in the House of Burgesses, when, of course, it's eventually reinstated, he says, I made one effort in that body for the permission of the emancipation of slaves which was rejected. So two things stand out to me from that. Number one, making an effort. Of course, people would say, it's not good enough to just make an effort. That's like when when your mother asks you to do something and you say, well, I tried to clean my room. They'll usually point out very correctly, not good enough, making an effort's not good enough in a lot of ways. I mean, he also says the permission of, meaning that the government, the House of Burgesses, needed to give permission in order for people to emancipate their slaves because it was illegal for you to emancipate your slaves beforehand. Even if you were a Virginia slave owner and you somehow woke up in the morning and thought, this is immoral, this is cruel, this is inhuman, I'm freeing all my slaves, the government still would not have allowed you to do that. So this is not the type of emancipation that we'll see later, where slavery ends on a large scale. This is just Jefferson wanting to have the permission as a slave owner to free his slaves or anybody else's if they thought it was necessary. Of course, it doesn't go down. But this is not the only political workings that Jefferson tries to get into. Jefferson is also questioning the idea of mixed race, Slaves, what do we do if the slave owner and the slave have a child? Foreshadowing, perhaps. <laughs> How do we treat that person? What are they? It's a question that all slave societies have trying to consider. The current statute in Virginia said that uh, the person, the child, will be held in servitude until the age of 31. In these slavery issues... Jefferson starts to make interesting points that will translate to the political issues with uh, Great Britain. He starts to make natural law arguments. He says, quote, Everyone comes into the world with a right to his own person and using it at his own will. He says, quote, This is what is called personal liberty and is given him by the author of Nature because it is necessary for his own sustenance. This, of course, is a fruitless endeavor for Jefferson. The slave laws really don't change. But it's interesting that Jefferson starts this off with slavery. Remember, he's going to own about 600 slaves. So it looks as if in Jefferson's early political life, he's actually advocating for or trying to bring about the end of Virginia slave society. At least that's how we could view things. We'll talk a little bit more about that and his evolving views later. But I think that the opinion of Jefferson as a racist non-apologetic slave owner, who never thinks about these issues, is wrong. We can certainly say he's racist in the sense that he owns slaves, but the fact that he never wrestles with the idea is just not true. He does. He is almost always wrestling with the idea of race and slavery in his mind and in... The government that he's participating in. Now, this wasn't the last time that we see Jefferson pursue ambitious political ideas or pursuing women. His next episode was with uh, a woman, Martha Wales Skelton, and she was actually younger than Jefferson, but she was a widow. And Jefferson finds her just completely fascinating. Jefferson sees Martha as his intellectual equal, his social equal, and Jefferson develops a pretty passionate attachment to her, and vice versa. Martha was known as Patty, by the way. As Meacham says... In his book, this big quote here, but I think it's important, he says, Yet Patty could reassure and calm her husband, who was given to worry and restlessness. Easing Thomas Jefferson's emotional tensions was a difficult task. He was acutely sensitive. At first blush, the fact that such a man was drawn to politics, where approval is fleeting, and... Criticism constant may seem contradictory. The connection between Jefferson's interior and exterior lives, however, follows a familiar pattern found in politicians from age to age. Ambition creates a hunger for action and acclaim, and those who crave applause have a particular aversion to criticism. His wife appears to have been one of the few people who could soothe him. End quote. So eventually Thomas and Patty marry and they seem to make each other very happy. But while all this is going on in Jefferson's life, they're still hanging over everybody, the political issues with Great Britain. The Townsend Act, the Stamp Act, the Sugar Act, those intolerable acts, as they're called, still played a major role in people's belief, as Jefferson believed, that their rights as Englishmen were being violated. Now, what's interesting enough is very, very, very few people at this time in the early 1770s believes that independence or rebellion is a good idea. Protesting is certainly one thing. Rebellion is another. And I think even Jefferson knows that a full-scale rebellion is likely to end in destruction and chaos for the colonies, not for the British. Most people were not in favor of a rebellion of any kind. A lot of them weren't even in favor of protesting. Meacham says that, overall, about a fifth of white American colonists in these years of the 1770s, about 20%, sided with England. 20%. A large portion saying, no, we should be taxed. Or, maybe not we should be, but eh, it's not worth losing a relationship with the British government. And as we get closer to 1776, we'll see these amount of people shrink. We'll see more people say, eh, "Okay, maybe rebellion is a good idea." And Jefferson says as his thoughts expand that this is not only for themselves, it's not only for the wealthy of Virginia but also for the entire country. For those people who had a lot of economic investment in the colonies, the wealthy landowning elites like the Jeffersons, like the Randolphs, revolution was an economic choice. As Meacham says it's a sh- it's the shrewdest economic choice. The British government had already limited land ownership west of the colonies. So if you had the money and you had the ambition, you couldn't just go out and get more land past the Blue Ridge Mountains, for example. And acres of land were extremely valuable in the 13 colonies. So it was something that people wanted to do. They wanted to go out and claim open land. Of course, it wasn't all open. There were some... Native Americans you had to deal with first, but they wanted to go out and claim the land, and the British government put the clamps on that. And, of course, any planter who needed financial help had to go through the British to do so, and they acquired a lot of debt. And as Jefferson points out, these debts became hereditary for many generations, so, chances are if your father was a planter or your father's father was a planter, you owed money to British banks or the government, perhaps, and it's estimated that Virginians owed at least two almost two and a half million pounds to british merchants so while you may farm while you may farm your land, live on your land, there's a good possibility that you owe most of your fortune to people in Britain so it's not as free and open of an economy and a society as we might think. Meacham says it's a rich man's revolution and Jefferson of course is a rich man he's he is an elite citizen of Virginia he's a member of the House of Burgesses he owns land, he owns slaves he's inherited quite a bit of wealth and prestige from his family but The idea of an economic revolution, that these elite colonists are being hurt in the pocketbook by British taxes and British policies, is brilliantly transformed into a philosophical and ideological revolution. Jefferson was an an elite, but he was also philosophical, and he could turn the economic outrage into a human rights outrage, into a liberal outrage, into an enlightenment outrage. He could make it philosophical, and that's something that the majority of colonists could get behind. Nobody likes to hear rich people complain about things. If the Declaration of Independence had said, we are declaring independence Because you're costing us money. That would not have been a good document. And nobody would have sympathized with that. Except for the elite and wealthy people of the colonies. If You're an average colonial farmer. Or you work in Williamsburg. Or you work in Boston. Or you work in New York. Trying to make ends meet. You're not going to sympathize. The issues of the wealthy and the elite. Ah, but if we turn it into an equality, if we turn it into a rights issue, then we can. This is the this is the intersection between the economic motives for the revolution and the philosophical, and Jefferson is the perfect candidate to lead that transition. Again, making people believe that. This current problem is their problem, and something needs to be done. Meacham says this quote: "The intersection of economic and ideological forces created a climate in which well-off, educated Virginians saw a clearer, more compelling, and more attractive future if they could successfully separate themselves from London." Unquote. But again, it has nothing to do with the average colonist, most of those people women, slaves, regular farmers, they don't have the same issue. So in Jefferson's mind, any move that would be interpreted as some sort of invasion on liberty and rights was thought of in just that way. Remember, all the people that he has associated some himself with his Whig ideologies from his young adolescence, the political influences that he's seen from people like Patrick Henry. Any time Jefferson perceived an invasion of anything, an encroachment of anything, he treated it as an encroachment on liberty and on rights. And that's what changes this economic rebellion into a broader rebellion about philosophy, about the Enlightenment. So how does Jefferson get this message out? How does Jefferson convince the people who have no economic interest, really, in this rebellion, how does he convince them that they do have an interest, that they have something invested. Grassroots movements. There's a reason why politicians go to Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and go door to door. There's a reason why they don't just hang around the elite places all the time, because there is power in the countryside. There is power in the average common citizen. We see this. A lot of times we're reminded of this in very interesting ways: the mass of people, the leadership of a mass movement. So one of the things that Jefferson adopts as a way to convince people or bring this idea of rebellion to people is through something that most of them have in common that motivate them to do things on a daily, or maybe a weekly basis, something they hold very dear. Of course, religion. Now, not everybody in the 13 colonies in the 1770s is religious, but a lot of them are, and it's a big motivating factor in their lives. And they can protest in religious ways. For example, Jefferson sponsors and is a big promoter of what's known as the Day of Fasting and Prayer. It's not very rebellious. We have issues. The British are taxing us. We have no representation in government. What should we do about it? Throw tea into Boston Harbor? Or we could have a day of fasting and prayer. No one is being asked to go get their musket and shoot redcoats. You're just being asked to participate in a day of fasting and a day of prayer. But While Jefferson himself is not necessarily a religious individual, he is very skeptical, we'll talk about this more later, of religion and the idea of God. But he understands that religion has a powerful role to play in people's lives and the way that they see the world and make decisions. He understands and appreciates the power of Religious appeals the the spiritual appeal, and in fact, Jefferson is not asking people to pray or fast for the overthrow of the British government in the colonies he's asking for he's asking for reconciliation in the resolution that he drafts in the House of Burgesses. Uh, Monday, May 23rd, 1774 is this day of fasting and prayer, and he asks for people to pray for deliverance from a possible outbreak of violence. He's asking people to pray to avoid any sort of open rebellion with the British. Now, of course, most people would probably have told you yeah we'd get crushed if we entered into an open rebellion with the british so they're probably doing this for a good reason but think about the genius of this the political genius of this he's he's basically telling people hey we hope this doesn't happen we hope there's no rebellion with the british we hope that you don't have redcoats coming through your towns we hope that your militias are not needed to fight in a rebellion. We hope we don't get crushed, so pray that we don't. It at least puts the idea in people's minds that rebellion could be possible. He also starts to build up the idea of these common rights of mankind. Basically, this we're all in this together. Saying, quote, We will ever be ready to join with our fellow subjects in exerting all those rightful powers which God has given us for the reestablishing and guaranteeing such their constitutional rights when, where, and by whomsoever invaded. We're all in this together. Jefferson is starting to break down the idea that this is a localized issue and that the people of Virginia should sympathize with the people of Massachusetts who are the most outspoken against this. And he starts to talk about human nature, natural rights, and the fact that nature has given to all men certain rights, and that these are universal laws. But again, he's approaching this from the standpoint that they are all Englishmen. When he talks about natural rights, he's not referring to natural rights as Americans. He's referring to natural rights as Englishmen, as British citizens. They are no different than the people who are living in London. And therefore, they have the same rights and liberties. And that is still the core belief of Jefferson's idea. He says that it's neither their wish nor their intention. It's not in their interest to separate from Great Britain. And yet still there's a hurdle to get over here. Thinking about reasons for rebellion thinking about changes to make to government and actually doing those things are very different. So talking about doing something and actually doing it is two very different things. Being prepared to rebel against the British and actually rebelling against them are very, very, very different. And that's something that we start to see materialize very quickly. What Jefferson is describing, whether it's through day of fasting and prayer or his opinions on slavery as a young politician and lawmaker, is that reason is more valuable than hereditary right and that the authorities that govern people Should govern based on reason and not necessarily based on long standing principles and traditions. As Meacham says in his book, Tyranny to Jefferson was tyranny, no matter where it came from. Could have been from the king, could have been from parliament, could have been from the House of Burgesses, could have been from a priest or the church could have been from anything. Tyranny was tyranny. And one thing that we have to point out, as Jefferson becomes more vocal, and as Jefferson becomes much more invested, as he starts to write and put his name out there, as someone who is leading this motivating charge of ideas, is that he's risking a tremendous amount. Jefferson could be brought up on treason. And if things go poorly, Jefferson would probably lose just about everything he had, maybe even his life. It's a tremendous, tremendous risk that Jefferson's taking. By the time we arrive at probably the most famous series of events in the independence period, Jefferson has earned himself a reputation big enough to be elected to the Second Continental Congress. He was not elected to the First Congress, but he was elected to the Second. And so on June eleventh, 1775, Jefferson leaves for the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. This has been Something Historical. Follow the show on Twitter at SMTH historical.